We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Good morning to everyone. I'm glad that you're here, very glad, and we're glad that it's nice and warm in here too. Well, at least some of us are. <laughs> Let's open our Bibles, please, to the Song of Solomon and the second chapter. Song of Solomon, chapter 2. One of the benefits of being able to go through this is, although we can't go through all the details because we're not preaching it, uh, I can point out a couple of areas um, where we can avoid error. One of those comes right in the very first, uh, in uh, ver- first verse here, chapter 2 in verse 1. I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. And then uh, we believe the beloved here is speaking, the, the uh, future husband, like a lily among thorns, so is my love among the daughters. I don't know how that makes the daughters feel, uh, if they're likened to thorns relatively to uh, the uh, young woman. But I remember years ago, uh, we had an exercise in a former church where I was, where the pastor asked us to call out uh, names uh, in the Bible of the Lord Jesus. And uh, somebody confidently asserted that he is the Rose of Sharon and uh, Lily of the Valleys. Yeah, that's not exactly accurate to the context in which these words are shared. This is about the Shulamite, uh, the young woman, the bride-to-be. Verse number 3, Like an apple tree among the trees of the woods, so is my beloved among the sons. I sat down in his shade with great delight, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. And then she speaks to the daughters of Jerusalem. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. There's a song that has been sung before. His banner over me is love applying to Christ, but here it's not at all applying to to the Lord. Uh, It's to the husband. And sustain me with cakes of raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am lovesick. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem... By the gazelles or by the does of the field, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. And don't rush it, you know, don't rush into this kind of a relationship. Uh, and I have to confess here publicly, I don't know what gazelles or does have to do with that, but that's kind of a, an exclamation that they made uh, to uh, maybe strengthen their charge. Verse number 8, the voice of my beloved, behold, he comes, leaping upon the mountains, skipping upon the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, he stands behind our wall. He's looking through the windows, gazing through the lattice. What excitement is in this young woman's heart for her love. Verse 10, my beloved spoke and said to me, rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. For lo, the winter is past. The rain is over and gone, the flowers appear on the earth, the time of singing has come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. No disrespect to Mr. Harwell, but that is a little bit out of context. It doesn't refer to the start of the baseball season, but maybe Dan would think it's pretty close. Close enough, right? Okay. Uh, Verse 13, the fig tree puts forth their green figs. And the vines with the tender grapes give a good smell. Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. O my dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the secret places of the cliff, let me see your face. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Catch us the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vines, for our vines have tender grapes. My beloved is mine, and I am his. He feeds his flock among the lilies. Until the day breaks and the shadows flee away, 
Turn, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag upon the mountains of Bethar. May God bless that reading of his word this morning. Pause and reset our minds from that love story to something a little more mundane, I suppose I could say. And we turn our Bibles to Genesis and the 14th chapter, if you would please. Genesis and chapter 14. And although this passage does deserve a lengthy treatment, we'll try to keep it uh, in within reason this morning here because it does connect a number of other passages of Scripture. And uh, I've put the title, The Elusive Melchizedek. And the reason that I put it like that is if you're familiar with the material in the Scripture on Melchizedek, it's very, very limited it seems to be more limited than what his importance uh, should have uh, generated in the text of Scripture. Uh, Melchizedek, to me, is like a cameo, a fellow who just pops in and pops out, and then he comes back and he comes back out again, and he appears here in Genesis 14, Psalm 110, and then in Hebrews 5 through 7, and that's it. In Scripture, very interesting to uh, to see this, and 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 actually, to, if you stop and think about it, from the perspective of the uh, author of Hebrews, for the author of Hebrews, who may in, in fact have been a preacher who whose sermon was written down, it's, it does sound to me like it was an oral address initially. That's just the feeling I get from the reading of it and how he's preaching. It's almost like a transcript of a sermon. Um, he spends a great deal of time referring back to Melchizedek, this elusive Melchizedek, back in Genesis 14. And you just think about the expertise of this man who is preaching this message to the Hebrew people and saying, using this to draw them into a full assurance of Jesus Christ. And you would never think to do that, would you? I mean, you'd think, well, these three verses and... Genesis 14, how is that going to assist a Jewish person? Well, when you connect it with Psalm 110, you see an amazing thing that happens. And boy, I'd love to to share this with our Jewish friends, just to be able to sit down with some who would listen and say, let's look at this text, let's go back to your Hebrew Bible and look at Psalm 110 and go back and look at the priesthood of Melchizedek and see if they could sense what the apostle is trying to do in the book of Hebrews, which is to get people to realize there is somebody coming who, who has come and will come again who is going to be a priest like this Melchizedek fellow was. Very different than what they're accustomed to in their history with the Levitical or Aaronic priesthood. So we come to the text and we see priest Melchizedek here worship God and he foreshadows Jesus Christ. And so look at the the verses, verses 18 through 20 of chapter 14. I uh, specifically or purposely skipped over these verses last weekend because I knew I would be treating them as a separate message. These verses read this way, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he, Abram, I believe, gave him, Melchizedek, a tithe of all. Now, we know this. If we read on in in, uh, Hebrews, we see this. But from this text alone, we can tell that it was Abram who gave the tithe, even though the the, uh, pronouns there may be a little uh, elusive themselves as to their antecedent. Abram was the one who gave the tithe because he was the one who had collected a large amount of spoils, a very large amount of spoils. But as we know from our message last time, did he keep any of those spoils? It seems that he gave every one of them away. Now, he did, they didn't all go back to the original owners. We have to be clear about that. But if you take 100% of those of those items and people that he got. Of course, he gave the people back to where they belong. Um, But as far as the material possessions, 10% went to Melchizedek because it says he gave the tithe. 
A portion of it went to Mamre, Aner, and Eshcol, those uh, ones who went with him, and to, uh, to some of the young men who went with him some food to uh, kind of keep them sustained as they made the long journey northward and then the long journey southward again to bring these ones and their things back to Sodom and Gomorrah and all of that. Quite interesting that in the end, Abram gained nothing from all of that that he did. Not that he needed anything, but that he was, he was de- definitely benevolent and kind to them, uh, very generous. Now, who is this Melchizedek? Well, it tells us that he was a king of Salem. Salem, you have an idea where that is? Yeah, we are familiar with Jerusalem, Salem. Um, and uh, his, his name, uh, Hebrews tells us, king of Salem or Shalom, king of peace is what it means and, uh, or what his title means as king there. But his name itself, Melchizedek, comes from two words, uh, Melech, which is king, which is from the verb Malak, to rule as king, and then Sedek, which is connected to and Sadiq, and uh, that rude word, sorry, that word group, which is the word for righteousness. So he is king of Salem or king of peace, and he's also king of righteousness. Now that is quite a name for a man to have. Uh, it would be, and he becomes a pattern, a foreshadow of Jesus Christ, and it would be hard for me to imagine a better type or foreshadowing person, character, than this Melchizedek. It says Melchizedek, I mean, he just comes out of like nowhere, seemingly nowhere. And I remember a message that a brother Eric Rowe preached on Melchizedek years and years ago in which he said that sort of thing, like, who is this guy? Where does he come from? Why does he suddenly come onto the scene, and he wasn't involved somehow in these battles between the four kings and the five kings, and uh, he certainly had no association with Sodom and Gomorrah because as the king of Sedek, of righteousness, he's not going to be involved with what Sodom and Gomorrah are involved in and the other cities if they were similarly situated morally. And so he shows up on the scene, and he brings out bread and wine, Almost sounds like he's going to have a communion service here. <laughs> not, not exactly a communion service. It wasn't the Lord's table. Of course, that didn't exist until the Lord instituted it uh, well after this in history. But it was a celebratory fellowship meal that he was offering on the occasion of Abram's victory over his enemies. And perhaps this victory also freed up Melchizedek and his city from the fear of having to deal with these uh, marauding city-states that were going around. And so they held a a feast in honor of Abram, for sure, but also in fellowship with the Most High God. They were connected. They had a, Abram and this Melchizedek had a connection which we don't fully understand because we don't know where Melchizedek came from. Where did he get this, uh, you know, this connection to the true God? But this was certainly not a humanistic celebration where it was just, wow, you know, congratulations, let's have a party kind of a thing. It was a remembrance uh, of the things that God had done for Abram. It tells us that Melchizedek brought out this bread and wine, and he was the priest of God Most High. So he had somehow a connection to God that you might think for a moment and say, wait a minute, how did this happen? Is he a Jew? can't be a Jew. Why? Because Abram was the first of those. (laughs) And so what happened here? Well, I don't have enough information to be able to tell you with certainty, but I can say this. God, before Abram, worked with Gentile people. And after Abram works with Gentile people, and even during the period of, you know, the ascendancy of the Jewish nation from Abram all the way to Malachi, worked with Gentile people. And in fact, the Gospels promised in the Old Testament prophets that God would work with Gentile people. And so the work of God is not limited in in the Old Testament era to Israel, is it? He has people. Peter 
began to re-notice this in Acts chapter 10. I perceive that God has people in all nations, those who fear him. And what God was doing was sending the gospel to those people through Peter and others who would bring that message of saving faith to them. So to think that uh, you know salvation came only to Israel in the Old Testament is a short-sighted view. It doesn't take into account the whole of Revelation. And this, I think, is a, is a, is a humbling truth to a person who thinks, look, I'm a Jew and I'm the people of God and I have special privilege. Well, what about this Melchizedek, king of righteousness, king of Salem, priest, priest, not only just a person who's a believer, but a priest of God most high, El Elyon, the highest of gods, the most high or highest. This is used not frequently of God, but it is used um, in uh, verse 20, blessed be God most high, blessed be Abraham of God most high. Um, and uh, later on in chapter uh, 14, verse 22, Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to, Lord God, to the Lord God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth. So you have Abram, uh, sorry, Melchizedek saying this, and then you have Abram saying the same thing. You know, the blessing in terms of in, in, to God and from God and Abram's agreeing. What, what's happening there is they're demonstrating they, they agree with one another. They are saying the same thing. So Abram is kind of putting his stamp of approval on Melchizedek and how he believes and how he practices uh, his faith uh, before God. You know that God was at one time explicitly known to the entire human race, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Seth, all of their children. Do you, think, do you think that Adam and Eve were really so lazy spiritually as to allow their children not to know who created them? Not to know whom the one that they had fellowship with those days in the early part of creation in the Garden of Eden? No, of course not. They told their children at that time, everybody knew the Most High God, the true and the living God, And that knowledge carried down through the human race down to us today. Like you know who God is, or like you who are watching online know about him. Now that knowledge may have been truncated, it may have been, you know, expanded incorrectly, it may have been changed, it may have been corrupted, but everybody knows about God. Besides all of that kind of the external flow of information in oral and written history, you have that which God has built into our hearts and our consciences. We know that God exists and we have, he's the one with whom we have to do in Hebrews. So uh, Melchizedek was this fellow, the, the priest of the Most High God, and we, we don't see this uh, title very frequently, as I was alluding to earlier before I got off on a little bit of a rabbit trail there, but uh, Numbers 24, verse number 16, tells us about this uh, same one. Uh, This isn't Balaam's prophecy, actually. The utterance of him who hears the words of God and has the knowledge of the Most High. And, of course, God was overruling his greedy office of prophet to try to make money, um, and, and overruled his words, but he was speaking at some points truth there. Uh, we also have Psalm 57. Psalm 57, just by way of, uh, don't, don't be embarrassed, but if you say Psalms 57, that's not technically correct. There are Psalms, and then there is a Psalm numbered 57, and there's a Psalm numbered 1, and a Psalm numbered 150, and so on. But we call it Psalm 150 instead of cha- or, uh, Psalm 57 instead of chapter 57 or Psalms plural 57. But Psalm 57, verse two: I will cry out to God Most High, to God who performs all things for me. You cry out to God Most High. There's another one, one more here. Psalm 107. I'll share with you. That's Psalm 107. And verse 11, 
I'll start in verse 10. Those who sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, boy, you can't unremember the connection of that to those in Jesus' day, can you? Who sat in darkness and the shadow of death, and the light has shined upon them, the light of the Messiah. It's bound in affliction and irons. You know, he came forth to free those in prison. Verse 11, because they rebelled against the words of God and despised the counsel of the Most High. People who rebel against the words of God and despise the counsel of the Most High sit in darkness and the shadow of death and are bound in afflictions and irons. And it's a miserable condition for a person to be in who is rejecting the words of the living God. We must remember this. God is most high. He is the sovereign authority over all of the earth. Okay? Um, I want to emphasize that in your mind today. You worship the most high God. You are related to the most high God. If you're a believer in Christ, if you're a believer, you are a friend of the most high God. And if you're not, you have to remember that he is far higher than you are, far higher than I am, far higher than anyone is. He is the most high. He is the sovereign, only potentate over all things. We are not. We are puny human beings. Now, Melchizedek didn't offer sacrifice right on the spot here, but the Bible tells us that he was a priest, and that means that he did offer sacrifices to God and was an intermediary, as it were, between other people and God. In this time in world history, God saw fit to have certain individuals, particularly patriarchs, in the family structure who would be the intermediaries between the, their, them, their family and God. They would be like almost a household priest. We see this in Job, who is an ancient fellow uh, from ancient, ancient history back here, maybe around the time of Abram or before, a little after. But Job was, uh, in chapter 1, it tells us, a righteous man, and he was a man who would offer prayers and sacrifices for who? For whom? His children. His children. He prayed for his children. He offered sacrifices for them. He beseeched God to forgive them of their sins. We know that would include them changing their heart and mind and wanting to receive that forgiveness, but he prayed for that for them. And Abram was the same. Abram, remember three times we've said Abram built an altar. You know, altars don't just build themselves, people don't just worship God on accident. You have to make a decision. I am going to follow God and I'm going to worship him in the prescribed way for me, whatever that is in this age. For Abram, it was animal sacrifice. For Job, it was the same. For the people of Israel, it became adapted to central altar worship. And for us, God wants us to worship him wherever, but as long as we do so in spirit and in truth throughout the whole world. He's assigned us a way to do that and we need to make a decision are we going to follow God or are we not? He was a man of God, this Melchizedek, the one and true and only God. He's a bit mysterious, though. How did he get called as priest? You know, people don't just set themselves up and say, hello, I'm a priest. You know, just like we don't have in our, in our practice, in our churches, if somebody comes in and says, hello, I'm a pastor now. No, we, we test that person. We prove them. We examine them, we teach them, we see if they have good doctrine and practice and their life matches the qualifications of Scripture, and then we may choose to recognize them, call, call it ordination, to recognize them to pastoral ministry. Uh, so same in Hebrews, the Bible says that men don't point, appoint themselves as priests but are appointed by someone else. Now, Melchizedek appointed, or sorry, pronounced a blessing on Abram in 19 verse 19 rather, chapter 14, it says, And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. Now that might be a prayer wish, like may he be blessed. And I could pray that for all of you folks, myself, my family, my children. May God bless you all. But I could also say God has blessed you all, right? 
And I think that's more the nuance here because Melchizedek is giving thanks to God for what God permitted Abram to experience. He went and he recovered all these goods and especially the people and brought them back. And so he's saying God has blessed him. Now that shouldn't be a surprise, my friends, because if we have any kind of memory, we should go right back to chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, where God says, I will bless him who blesses you and I will curse him who curses you and you will be a blessing, okay? I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And Melchizedek, being related to that same God who made that pronouncement to to Abram, says the same thing. God has blessed this man. He is a blessed individual. Um. So God is blessing Abram. We have a statement here, not a prayer wish, but a statement of fact. Now Melchizedek recognized that this was the one God who possesses heaven and earth. Do you see that text there? I'm going to share with you a number of verses, and I want you to file these away, or maybe I could say it this way. File the concept away in your mind as part of your personally memorized confession of faith. And here's why. Because you're going to be witnessing to people, you're going to be sharing the word with people, and you might have forgotten to explain the answer to one of the most basic questions in the world, and that is, who is God? Somebody might ask you that question. And have you ever ever been asked a question where like, Oh, man, that's so obvious, I have never even thought of that as being a question. I don't even know how to answer that question because... So, so you're witnessing to somebody and they say, who's God? Who is God? Is he some big man upstairs? No. Please don't call God the big man upstairs. That's not good, okay? He's far more than that. In fact, the scripture says God is not a man. He's not a man. He's different than men. He's different than men. He has created us in his image, but that doesn't mean we have everything that he has. We fall far short of that for sure. But why is God the possessor of heaven and earth? Why do we acknowledge him that way? Well, first of all, he built them. He made heaven and earth. He created everything. It belongs to him. There are no peers who vie in competition to possess heaven and earth from him. We sang in the song today, did you, did you uh, notice that? Uh, something like, princes of darkness own his command. God bosses even the demons around. If, he, if it comes to it, he tells them what to do, and they do it. Cyrus, the godless pagan king, was a servant of the Most High God. And so are you, whether you are a believer or not. Whether you listening online are Christians or not, you are ultimately serving the purposes of the Most High God. He is in charge, and I am not ashamed to say that. He is our God. He is your God. We're all going to bow before Him someday. I hope all of you do now. But whether willingly or unwillingly, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is L-O-R-D, Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, I mean, there are others, there are, you know, there are pretenders who want to be like God, but no one can be. Even Satan said, I will be like the Most High. Try again. Reverse. <laughs> Go backwards, my friend. That's not going to happen. But listen to this. This is why we believe that God is the creator of all things and why we have this as part of our confession of faith. And I want you to have this to help you define who God is. Now, we could go into a theological definition and uh, say that, you know, God is that infinite eternal spirit in whom exists all the perfections of uh, deity that are listed in Scripture and give a kind of a technical answer, and, and that'd be great. And maybe we should do that sometime. But for now, let's just think on this. Psalm 24.1, The earth is the Lord's and all of its fullness the world and those who dwell therein. I often use that, maybe not often, but not infrequently use that in my prayer around the table. God has given us of his fullness. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and when you're having a hamburger, you're having part of one of those cattle. 
And you better thank God for that because you're not, God's not obligated to give you three squares a day and snacks in between and all the beverages that you could ever want. He's just not obligated to do that. 1 Corinthians 10.26, the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. Job 41.11, in that great section of questions, who has preceded me that I should pay him? Everything under heaven is mine, God says. Jonah 1.9, while he and the other pagan sailors were bouncing around in this ship on the storm-tossed sea, said, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. You know, he's the one who's roiling up this sea. And so that's why the pagan sailors became afraid, because they said, oh boy, he's messed with the God of the sea, and you were on the sea, and we're going to die. They had a little of an, of an incorrect view that way, but at least they were appreciating what was going on. Psalm 50, verse 12 If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine in all of its fullness. Remember, God is the possessor of heaven and earth. Psalm 89, 11, the heavens are yours. The earth also is yours, the world and all its fullness. You have founded them. Psalm 146, speaking of the Lord God, who made the heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps truth forever. Deuteronomy 10.14, Indeed, heaven and the highest heavens belong to the Lord your God, also the earth with all that is in it. That includes everything on your little square of property that you have. Your condo, your home, your farm, or whatever, everything belongs to God. Indeed, the heaven and highest heavens belong to the Lord. Nehemiah 9.6 is the last verse I have for this section. You alone are the Lord. You have made heaven the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and everything in it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve them all. The host of heaven worships you. We worship God in part because in six days he made the heavens and the earth and everything that is in them. So says the Ten Commandments to the people of Israel and to us. Now, Abram, uh, sorry, Melchizedek pronounced blessing on Abram, but he also said this in verse 19, uh, sorry, verse 20, and blessed be God, most high. Now, I'll deal with something that may have come to your mind if you've been reading scripture for any length of time. In Hebrews, the Bible says, without contradiction, the less is blessed by the better. And so you say, okay, well, Melchizedek blesses Abram pronounces a blessing, actually saying, really, God is blessing him. But now Melchizedek is saying, blessed be God. So is Melchizedek the greater pronouncing blessing on the lesser? No, this is a different kind of blessing. This this two-directional blessing, this use of the word in two different directions, informs us that what's going on here is that when he pronounces the blessing to Abram, he's saying, look, God has blessed, meaning favored and protected Abram. So when I pray, God bless the church, I'm thinking of the whole list of all the people and saying, God, would you protect them and show your favor upon them? How, how, I mean, you know how deep that prayer is? How do you need God's favor shown to you right now? You don't even know how you need God's favor shown to you right now. But if we pray, and we ask God, show your favor, he might show it on you in one way, and you in another way, and you in a third way, and you in a fourth way, and in the ways that you need. You know, you need to be favored by opening your eyes to understand more of Scripture, to be more sanctified, to recognize areas where you need to refine your conduct, to um, love the Lord more with all of your heart. Those are the areas, many areas that you need favor in, and and, and who knows about protection? You know, Brother Ben and I passed through a, near whiteout conditions on the highway in 96 near Grand Rapids the other day, and boy, uh, it was a little bit of a, a white-knuckle uh, drive for a little while there. And I'm thinking, oh, I wish I would have changed those tires on my car. <laughs> but, yeah, I'm reminding you, change your tires. Maybe that's how God's going to protect you. But, uh, you know... 
God favor and protect us. But when we say, blessed be God, or when, when Melchizedek says, blessed be God most high, what we're saying is we give thanks to God. We worship God. So in, blessing in the one case is favor and protection from God to us. From us to God, it's not, you know, God be favored and God be protected. He doesn't need that from us. What he calls for from us is worship, thanksgiving, honor, praise. That's what it means when we say blessing toward God. He is worthy of this, and particularly in this case, he's worthy of it because he protected Abram from those enemies. He sent him out and brought him back in. So Melchizedek blessed Abram, says God has blessed Abram, and says God himself was blessed, just honored, uh, worthy of worship, credit thanksgiving and honor and so on. All right, you get the two-directional blessing there, favor and protection toward us and uh, worship toward God. Now, let me deal with the last phrase of verse 20, and he gave him a tithe of all. He gave him a tithe of all. That's Abram gave Melchizedek a tithe of everything. I think the everything here is limited to all the stuff that he brought back with him. He didn't have all of his other stuff with him. That was left at home. All the things that he brought back uh, that were captured by the, the four kings who beat the five kings up. Um, and so he gave him a tithe. Now, in the, I don't know that I have this in the notes. I guess I did leave this in the notes. Um, I do speak about tithing in terms of us and the church in, a, in an article that I wrote some time ago on my blog. It's on the website. I give the link to it here. You can search online and find it if you are interested in that question. Every couple years, invariably, I get that question from people. Should I give a tithe? Uh, are we required to give a tithe? Some churches preach tithing, which I think is a, is a very bad error, but they do so. And um, so I've given you that answer. I'm not going to go down that path here today. What I want to talk about is the context in which this sits and a little bit about the bigger picture for the Jewish person. The kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, in the end, uh, final analysis, did not receive everything back that they lost because Abram decided that he was going to give 10% of that to Melchizedek to support the work of the ministry that Melchizedek was doing and in, in Salem, whatever that entailed. And in fact, they received even a little less than 90% because some of the food that went to the young men and Mamre and Anna and Ashkal those ones who were helpers to Abram. So somewhat less than 90%, say 80, 85% of what they had, had, had gone out had come back. Well, 80% of what they had is certainly better than 0% of what they had, right? So they couldn't complain. And I'm sure they didn't complain because they knew that they were in great debt to, to Abram. But the tithe served as a worship of thanksgiving to God for what God had done for Abram. God had kept the Abrahamic covenant and protected Abram and his nephew Lot and those who went with him to the battle. Uh, he returned the captives and the possessions. The enemies were conquered. God deserved the credit, not Abram, not his 318 men. Listen to this. Where did this tithe come from? Even the wicked of Sodom and Gomorrah paid a tithe in effect through what Abram did, right? It was their stuff. Abram got it back. Abram took from their stuff and gave it to God. Now, they certainly weren't going to give God anything. They were wicked people. So Abraham did it for them out of their possessions, which he recovered from that confederation led by Kedor Leomer. It's interesting that even indirectly from unbelievers, God received a tithe in recognition of his grace. Yes, indeed, even unbelievers ought to offer to God out of thanksgiving. Now, sometimes today, people who don't go to church, aren't Christians, will even give to a church because they feel that it's an extra good work. Well, maybe you know, it'll hedge their bets a little bit, and they'll, you know, they'll be covered, and God will look favorably upon them. And that's the part of that works-based mentality that people have. It's wrong. But there is a sense in some, at least, that the work of the church is worthy of some kind of support, even if it's kind of just a secular viewpoint. You know, the church is doing good in the community. It's 
I mean, they don't really, really the community expects us to be, you know, the kind of the clothes closet, the food pantry, and uh, the do-gooders that help them with whatever stuff they want without having to participate actually in the church. I can't tell you how many times people have criticized me and the church for our kind of limited benevolence policy. We don't just give out money to people we don't know because I've had, I used to do some of that, you know, because I was trying to be helpful, but people cheat you. You know, you call the hotel where they're staying, oh yeah, different churches paid for them every night for the last three weeks, but they were only supposed to be here two days. Because people are liars. Now, I, I hate that that affects how we try to help people. But you know, the church is not just a place where people can kind of glom onto it and like take, 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 take. If you want the goods, if you want the blessings of being part of a church, then be a part of a church. Get saved and be part of the church. Come and join the church. Come and be with the church. Listen to the ministry of the church, but don't expect to just come and with your hand out and just you're going to receive money. That's kind of offensive, isn't it? In a sense. Now people say, well, that's harsh. You know, you shouldn't be like that. You should just give, 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 give. Well, sometimes giving actually harms people. You enable them to continue in a bad state. So, but in any case, how did I get on that? These unbelievers end up giving to God through Abram and, uh, and recognizing that God is worthy of this because he protected and saved them. They're, they're, I mean, even from Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have to say, whatever gods they worshipped, those gods didn't cut it. The God of Abraham cut it for them, but not their pagan you know, idols or whatever. Now, if you're familiar with the law of Moses, you'll note, too, that Abram paid a tithe. And you know who he paid it to? A Gentile. Wasn't that kind of weird? Would a Jewish person ever think to do that? What's going on here? The book of Hebrews explains it like this. Usually Jewish people pay tithes to Levi, but here Levi, not yet existing, but in effect paid tithes through Abram to, uh, the, uh, to Melchizedek. God arranged something special here to indicate to the nation of Israel someone beyond them, someone higher than them, worthy of recognition and support. So paying a tithe to somebody or you know a, a, an organization or the temple in this case of the old, in the case rather of the Old Testament or in this case to Melchizedek indicates the greatness of that person. In fact the scripture says consider how great this man Melchizedek was to whom even Abram Abram I mean that's like saying you know there's somebody in US history before and better and above George Washington you know, I'm not saying that George Washington is the be-all and end-all. I'm just saying kind of the mindset that we have as, as a founder of the country, like somebody beyond that, somebody beyond Abraham that they're paying 10% of their stuff to. But what God was doing is preparing the way for the Jewish people to understand that somebody, some sort of almost like an outsider was going to come in to whom the nation should pay homage of this kind of sort. And what person was that going to be? Well, that was going to be the priest, king, prophet, Jesus the Messiah. So we mentioned other portions of Scripture. I'll just go over that just now as we close. First of all, Psalm 110 talks about Melchizedek. If you turn in your Bible there, Psalm 110 is one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament must mean something that has some significance. Psalm 110, of course, quoted for two reasons. One is because of how the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool, and you're going to rule out of Zion, and your people will be volunteers in the day of your power. You'll be willing participants. But in verse 4, it says, the Lord has sworn and will not relent. To this one who is a king who is going to sit at the right hand of God until God puts his enemies under him and then he rules over his enemies, so he's going to be a king. To this king, he says, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Very strange that you're going to have a king priest. 
In the Old Testament, the last time that sort of thing occurred was with Moses. He was effectively a king in Israel, right? He didn't have the title king. He was a mediator between, he was the mediatorial king between God and the nation, but he was also able to offer sacrifice, wasn't he? David wasn't able to do that. Solomon was not able to do that. Uzziah was not able to do that, even though he went into the temple and tried to do that. But now we're going to come back to a kind of situation where we have a king priest. We also know he's going to be a prophet. So you're a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, when God promises something, is it as good as done? When he swears something, is it as good as completed? Yes. And then it says, and he will not relent. I mean, he's telling us, I'm not changing my mind on this deal. This is the final answer. He's going to be a priest. The declaration of that priesthood of the Messiah is irreversible. It's unbreakable. It's founded on the reliability of the divine promise and the divine power. Messiah is a priest like Melchizedek, and he will be so forever. And I think the fact that Melchizedek kind of pops onto the scene and goes off, there's no genealogical information of him. Hebrews talks about that. There's no record of his parentage. There's no record of his death. The Lord did that on purpose to say, this is what the Messiah is going to be like. Now, we do have a record of the Messiah's lineage, but of course, part of his lineage is miraculous, isn't it? Through the virgin conception and birth. But he has the connections to Joseph and Mary, as we know from Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel. And that he would never die, even though he died and rose again. We know that in the end, he's not going to ever die now. And so he's, Melchizedek is like him, or he's like Melchizedek. And then Hebrews 5 mentions Melchizedek uh, nine in nine verses by name, but the, he's just all throughout there in terms of the content of, this, of the section. Hebrews 5, uh, 6, and 7. And it says, listen to this in verse 10. This is a strong rebuke. Jesus being called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom, and I think he's speaking specifically of Melchizedek and this priestly line through him, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you become dull of hearing. So if you're sitting here today and saying, look, I never heard of this Melchizedek guy before, uh, or this doesn't make any sense to me, then you've, you're falling into the category of people that, that uh, the apostle is talking about here in verse number 11. You become dull of hearing. I mean, you're not paying attention to the kinds of things you should be paying attention to. If your Savior, Jesus, is the priest according to the order of Melchizedek, sworn by God in Psalm 110, mentioned in Genesis 14, and you know nothing about that, you've kind of missed the boat, a big boat, of understanding what Scripture talks about. And you should understand that because it will help you go back to who Melchizedek is. He's the king of righteousness. How righteous are we? He's the king of peace. How peaceful are we in our lives and in our homes? That's the kind of person that we're related to, Jesus, the king of peace and the king of righteousness, capital K in both cases. We ought not to be dull of hearing, unable to process what this priesthood means. So Melchizedek is a significant person. Uh, he's different in priesthood than the Levitical priesthood. And so the, the scripture tells us, well, because he's a different priest, then the former law must be annulled and a new law must be put into place because the law did not allow somebody outside of Aaron and Levi to be priest. So this is the key for a Jewish person because if they look at that, they don't... Forget Hebrews. Don't forget Hebrews. But if you're, if you're a Jewish person, fine, you don't believe Hebrews. Go to Psalm 110 with them. And do exactly what the apostle does here. And say, look, your Bible says that God's going to raise up a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, I happen to know who that priest is. Would you like me to tell you more? But anyway, that guy, he's not an Aaronic priest. So that means your law has to have changed for this priest to come about. You can't just go back and rely on the old ways. 
a new dispensation is predicted to have to come in Psalm 110. You just have to accept that. There's no way around it. There's no back door or anything like that. It just is what it is. This is God told you already. And in fact, we know, you know, then you might turn your Bible to Isaiah 53 and say, God told you some other things in your history and lovingly explain to them like Philip did to the Ethiopian eunuch. When the Ethiopian eunuch said, who is this talking about? And Philip began from that verse to preach Christ to him. That's what we need to do to preach Christ to people. We love Christ. We, we, we're related to him. We, we're in him. Christian salvation, my friends, is not just belief in, in some facts or religious activity, uh, checking the box to come on Sunday morning and I'm done now. Uh, Christ is our life. We are in him. He is our Lord. We are his subjects. He is our king. We are his servants. He's the one who came in the order of Melchizedek. So God introduces here an important person to us. It's a bit oblique, you know, kind of a kind of a cameo appearance there in Genesis. But this person is a prototype of the Messiah. There's no record of his birth or death. He just kind of popped onto the scene. He never really disappeared. He just kind of faded away. I believe he did die that he was not a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. He was a man. But God promised to make another priest in this line. A very sparse line, I might add. Melchizedek 1, Jesus 2, and that's it. And that priest is Jesus the Messiah. But you know, there's another little thing about this that's more than a curiosity. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2 that God has raised up for himself a priesthood. You. You all are privileged to be priests before God. And since you're in Christ, kind of a little bit like Melchizedek. And you're able to interact directly with God. You're able to help other people come to God. Not that they go through you, but you can shepherd them to God through Christ, can't you? Isn't that powerful? You have the privilege to pronounce the gospel as the priest of God. You have the ability to tell people, I believe in God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth. And I trust that you will do that. Even this holiday season, help people with that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are indeed God most high, and may we treat you with respect that respect that you deserve because you are the one and the only true and living God, the potentate over all things. Lord, thank you for blessing us, and we bless you in return. In the weak and little way that we can, but thank you that you privilege us who are in Christ to be his servants and to have a priesthood as well. In Jesus' name, amen.